Hey, it's Mastin Kip, and welcome to today's podcast. Very honored to have Truly LeBron on the podcast today. She is a coach, consultant, podcaster, and speaker who believes that coaches can have the potential to be key players in social change. She has a master's degree in psychology with a concentration in social change and public administration and is a PhD candidate in social psychology. She has been a uh, consultant, uh, an expert helping coaches and entrepreneurs create sustainable businesses that lead to social impact and also help them create more racial and ethnic diversity across the coaching industry. This is a must listen. Get your pen, your paper, your notes, whatever it is, get it out, get ready to listen. There has been a lot of uproar lately and really, we're really focusing on the value of black lives, why it's important to talk about racism, how to do it, especially if you're a white person and you don't know what to do. This is an important, important episode. Here is Trudy LeBron. Trudy, welcome to the podcast. Really happy to have you here today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I, um, I, I think that uh, uh, I'm so happy to have uh, discovered your work because uh, the conversation about race is a, uh, I think a lot of people don't know how to have it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think with everything that's happening in the world right now, uh, it's, it's uh, really on people's mind. I'm hoping it's a, uh, a, a threshold moment that goes way beyond, like it just goes away. I really hope this creates some social change. Um, I would love to chat with you today about, you know, equality in the coaching space and also to really break open the conversation, especially for white people. Uh, because I've met so many that don't know how to talk about this stuff. So I'm just kind of wanting you to talk a little bit about like what your perspective is on what's happening today to maybe contextualize it, bring some understanding. I think some people are confused about like what is going on right now. Yeah. So what's going on is that we're in a cultural crisis, global crisis, right? Where um, at this moment that we're recording, there are people protesting in the streets there, you know, some people are peaceful protesting. There are people looting. There are all people on all sides of, you know, the conversation out. Um, there are police officers who are being extremely violent and using excessive force to arrest, to harm, to injure, to kill, as we've seen. Um, and we're at a breaking point in the world. I think, I think we are. I mean, that, none of this stuff is new. It's just Correct, yeah. in the, in maybe a combination of coronavirus and people have being in their homes and, you know, quarantine for months now. I think that the, just the combination of all of the things has created um, this moment. And of course it's fills up every part of our life, right? The con- people are trying to figure out how to have conversations around their dinner tables and people are having converse, trying to figure out how to have conversations in their businesses, mm-hmm. especially to me, I think, especially in the coaching space, because yes. the coaching space is so it's so personal. It's inherently about transformation and personal development or professional development um, and being better. I think that's at the core of what yeah. the coaching w- world is about. And so people are trying to figure out how to have those conversations in their spaces and some folks are better equipped to do that than others. <laughs> I mean, I think that's the only way that I can say yeah, that, you know? It's true. It's true. What is, um, I, I think the, 
the first question I would have, because uh, I've been talking to so many people and I'm seeing like a trending sort of, sort of questions, especially with white type coaches, right? Is that they default to this, guys, th- there is no racism. We're all just one race. It's all yeah. love. Like, and, you know, and, and like, what are you talking about? Like, and I, I've been trying so hard to articulate why that's not the case. And one of the things I think was so great when I saw your training the other day, you used a really important word, which is explicit. I think a big piece of trauma work is making the implicit experiences that we aren't able to verbalize explicit. That's a huge piece of healing. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you could talk about why, even though on a spiritual level, sure, it's true, we're one race, we're all love, Bob Marley yeah. was right, right? Like, but what is it about that that's actually dismissive? Is it, is it semi-racist? Like, how do we address that? Because I, I don't think they understand that it's actually not the right thing to say. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not semi-racist. It's race. It's just racist. Yeah. <laughs> like it's, yeah. You know, I don't think there is a semi-racist category. Um, yeah, it is pretty binary. The, yeah, the reason is because racism is about a system, right? It's not racism isn't about like whether or not you're a good person. It's not about whether or not someone said something mean or or said, I have a friend who is, you know, black or identifies or, or can even just say black man, black woman, right? Black person. Racism is connected, is inherently connected to a system of oppression um, based on race. And that has always been the case since the founding of this country. Um, What, what I try to help people understand is that anti-racism work and doing like equity work and trying to like understand all of these things. It's not about being a better white person. It's about really changing outcomes for people. Right. And so if, if we say things like race doesn't matter or we're all, I don't see color. What you're saying is that you're not seeing the ways in which black and brown folks and other groups of color and people who are at different types of margins are categorically systemically oppressed and treated differently and the data backs it up like we can you know i I said this on our call too we can look at a zip code and a race right you can give me someone's race and zip code and i can tell you with really good accuracy what their life outcomes are going to be like the likelihood that they're going to go to prison or that they'll graduate high school or what socioeconomic status they'll fall in yeah and if we don't see color we don't see that. That's right. And I think, I think it's like good intentions, but you know, part of the pun, that's, it's whitewashed because you're so right. Like it's, it's the failure to acknowledge the problem and right. you cannot transform trauma without acknowledging it. And what is the value? Why is it important? And I know this seems probably seems so one-on-one, but I've seen it like all over the place the last few days. Why is it so important to explicitly name racism against black people and mm-hmm. to acknowledge that experience and does doing that, I know the answer, but I just want to make sure we can get it really mm-hmm. out there. Does acknowledging the racist uh, point of view systems towards black people, the pain, the injustice that they've experienced and taking that experience in, in any way negate the pain of any other group? Does it make it less important? No, absolutely not. This We cannot be in um, a way of being where it's like one person's pain is um, more important than another person's pain. Like that's just not a useful way to think about Mm -hmm. 
to think about pain. And we hear this a lot. Like, I, you know, I'll hear white people say like, well, you know, I was poor and I had to work mm-hmm. really hard and I don't have white privilege. It's like, yeah, that's not, it, it doesn't mean that you didn't have to work hard to get to where you are. It just means sure. that there were advantages that were in place that made it easier for you to, to have. So, you know, and I, I think there's probably a good argument to say that like, right, especially right now, like the r- racism against black and brown people is more important. <laughs> like it's, right. it's more exactly. important than most things, right? That's we need right. to be paying attention to what's happening in the world. And it's, it's time that justice work, anti-racism work is not convenient, right? right? It's not, it's not comfortable. It's not convenient. And so we need to, if, if you're committed, if this is important, then you do what's not comfortable. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, ironically, if we're talking about the coaching or transformational space, transformation is always uncomfortable. Like there's no one ever like grew a business comfortably, you know, and it's (laughs) in a way similar because, you know, it it is completely uncomfortable. The difference is for a lot of white people, there isn't really an economic benefit. It's a, it's more about a moral obligation or it's about spiritual growth. Right. And that's what I said in my first, the, before we did like the workshop, the first thing that I did was like a live on Facebook and that was my question to people is what's your, what about your moral bottom line here? Yeah. Like, it's not just about what's good for the bank, right? It's what's good for your soul and for the souls of other people and for the experiences of other people. Um, you know, we, we have to be willing to put something on the line if it's something that we say is important to us or don't say that it's important and right. just carry on like how you're, you know, however you regularly right. behave. But then at least, at least that's clear. Like right, at least it's exactly. clear about like, oh, I don't need to expect these things from this person because what they say, you know, what their behavior is in line with their action, with their words and with their exactly. intentions. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, when you, when you look at like all the research around trauma, right? So trauma is not a singular event. Right. It's also the amount of resilience or safety or love or compassion you had going into a traumatic event. But even more importantly, it's what happened afterwards. Were you believed? Were you validated? Were you seen? Were you heard? Uh, was your pain able to be shared? Like, was your reality uh, denied or was it uh, empathized with, right? An empathetic witness is the goal. And as far as I can tell, effectively, the request is, if I had to translate very simply, and I know it's way more, way more complex than this, but effectively, what my interpretation is, is that the black trauma has not been acknowledged right that to me and fundamentally that's what it is and by acknowledging it it doesn't take away from anybody else but it does say this is what happened and it, would you say that like maybe that's like the essence of it or am I, did i miss it i think that you know no, i think that's a important part of it i think realizing that it hasn't been acknowledged and i think that people don't want to acknowledge it because it's so uncomfortable yeah and 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 because they feel like it takes something away from them by acknowledging someone else's pain that it, it means right. that theirs is theirs is less. The other reason that we see this though is about conditioning and about you know like just how we're how we're programmed and how we're raised. I I remember being little and being told you know hearing people say like I don't see color and mm-hmm. teachers who would say I don't see color you know, um, but people would. It's funny because you know. People say, I, I will n- I'll never forget this. Like people saying, I don't see color. Teachers saying, I don't see color. 
And then I would walk into school with my father and people would say, how is that your father? Because right. I am lighter which skin. One is it? He's, well, you cl- <laughs> clearly you see color. You know what I mean? Yeah, like exactly. you see it. Yeah. So, um, and I, I would get a lot of that, you know, like growing up. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a, it's a bold man. Like you have to, you have to see, you have to acknowledge and you can't make that mean anything about your own, you know, your own experiences. And it's right. also acknowledge that you were as, so as white people aren't taught to see themselves as white people, they're just taught no. to see themselves as people. That's right. Right. Um, so this is very new. The, that's the other part of the climate that we're in. White folks are not used to being racialized. And that is really uncomfortable. Whereas non-white people are very much used to being right. racialized. You, it is very clear, like, if you are not white in this country. Um, and so that is also another growth edge for white people. Um, they don't like being called white people. Right. Yeah. I I hear a lot of that too. I hear a lot of people who are um, in the camp of sort of like all lives matter or we're all one or whatever. say the exact same thing. Like don't label me. And what goes through my mind is, well, how the do you think it's felt this whole time for the last 400 years? You know, like, hello. But, and I also think that I was trying to explain this to somebody earlier today about why it's so important to name it as a black experience versus all people is that, for example, if you go to the doctor and your liver's messed up, you don't get a diagnosis that your body's sick. <laughs> right. you know? Like right. you go to the liver and you focus on liver health and the protocol for liver health is not the same as the protocol for stomach health, right? right. So while you are one body, you are made up of many different parts. And if one part's not operating well or is sick, you have to acknowledge it. You yeah. mean, could you imagine if you went to a, a you got a, a, an x-ray and you said, well, your bones are broken. Well, which one, right? Like how do I know right. where to look? You know, exactly. Would you say that's that's an accurate way to think of it? I think it's exactly right. I think we need to give very, again, explicit language to things that are happening. Um, And we need to not make it mean um, we how do I want to say it? You you have to not take it personally. Right. So if we look at our businesses, for example, and you realize that you have like 95 percent of your clients are white. Instead of getting like defensive and fragile around like, well, that's, you know, like I didn't mean, I didn't mean to do it that way. I didn't say that the business is only for white people. Like I welcome everyone instead of making it about you and, and your feelings, like saying, whoa, like I, I built that unconsciously. Right. And let me fix it. Like, let me learn what I have to do to fix it. Exactly. I mean, in a lot of ways, uh, it sounds a lot like how you do a healthy relationship, right? Because like in a healthy relationship, if one person gets activated and the other person then gets triggered and you start arguing over the details, then you're missing each other's actual emotional content. Right. And what it sounds like is focusing on the emotional component and trying to not even agree on the facts because that's so complex about like who started this and yeah. why and where and stuff. But it's more like this is your experience. And it's a really good sign of a healthy relationship when you can for a moment set yourself aside and actually take in the experience of somebody else. And it sounds like that's basically the skill set that's required here to be able to do that. Is that? Yeah, I, I definitely believe so because if we can take it out of the personal emotional state, it's much easier to take responsibility and to apologize and to not make it mean that you're this bad person. Yeah. Right. And that you have like all these bad intentions. Like that's right. not, 
that's not useful. What exactly. is useful is to get the help and help looks like starting with just like, just like with relationships and everything else is starting with you, not learning how to like put pictures of diverse people on your website or mm-hmm. start a scholarship program or whatever. It looks like looking at you first and saying, well, how did I build this by accident in the first place? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, uh, as you say that, um, I'm remembering I was, uh, as a part of my education, I try to attend a thing called the trauma conference put on by Bessel van der Kolk in Boston. And there's a lot of, you know, neuroscience there and, you know, mm-hmm. data that's reported and everyone talks like presents papers and stuff, but, uh, there was a, a section on social justice and I showed up, uh, and there was like the, it was a pre-conference event and I showed up and I was the only white male in the room, I believe. If not, there was only maybe one other. And I was like, wow. oh, this is what it feels like. Like I was a dose of, you know, like, whoa, first of all. And then I did my best to just listen. But I came in with a very earnest question because this was about a year or so ago when Tony Robbins was getting all the flack for, you know, that old video using the, the yeah, yeah. And stuff like that. And I was, I had an earnest question, which was, where is the line between exposure therapy and racism? Yeah. Right. Because like practitioner context and like one-to-one is very different than that. Totally. And what happened was, is a group of people, I, I asked it privately. I did not want to ask it with everybody. <laughs> but what happened was, is a woman came up to me. She's a black woman. She must've been 65, 70. I'm six, five. And she was sh- shorter than me, but she looked up at me and she goes, you got to understand something. You're the oppressor. I'm sick and tired of explaining this. Right. Yeah. And I was like, I, was, I, I, I felt a shockwave through my body and I was like, Wow. I'm really sorry if I'm hurting you. And then there's a group of other uh, African-American women there looked at me and said, how are you doing in your body right now? And I go, I'm not doing so good. And they said, okay, examine all those responses and then get back to us, right? And I was like, oh, okay. And I just, I did not try to refute, rebut, yeah, but or whatever. I tried to sit with that. Yeah. And what I took away from it, I'm curious what your thoughts are on this is, whether or not Mastin, the individual, intentionally is a racist is not the conversation. It's right. the environment that I was raised in was a colonial environment that has all these unconscious biases that's set up from birth. And it's archetypal, right? Like people that look like me hurt people that look like you for a really long time. And acknowledging right. that seems to be a really important thing. Would it you say is, that's true? I would 100% say that that's true. You need to understand that your identity, all identities are, you know, they're connected to systems and to instant, like ideologies, right? Like that is, we can't get away from that. So, you know, thinking, well, I, I personally, like, am not an oppressor. Like I don't do anything. Well, you, you might actually, like you, you may do things that you don't even realize are dismissive or oppressive. And you probably haven't taken the time to actually look at your behavior and the way that you, you know, conduct yourself and the impact you have on other people. So unless you have done that, you really can't say that you are because you probably, you, you probably do. Um, Now you don't have as a person institutional power to like oppress many people, but people that you are connected to do hold that power. That's right. And so understanding that you belong as a white person, especially as a white man, right. To that, that resource of power, you you have con- some control there like you have some power in that system and so getting upset about how you personally are not is it's right. 
much less useful than examining how that may be true and right. then learning how to undo it and showing exactly. up intentionally in spaces to disrupt th- those patterns. That's right. And uh, I'm glad you said that because that, that was the conclusion I came to. And what I did actually at my seminar last year, Claim Your Power Live, is the first time I did it and I'll do it at every other one in the future. We were in Atlanta, Georgia. So there was a uh, two things that I wanted to acknowledge when I first got started. One was this was Cherokee land first. Okay. Yeah. And two, the history of slavery here was massive. And three, I'm a white guy on the stage and there's people of color here and we're trying to create a non-oppressive, inclusive environment. And it was, Trudy, it was so scary. I was up there like, am yeah. I gonna die? What's gonna happen here? And I was sitting there like, I felt so naked. I was like, I don't want to get the words, I won't get the words wrong. Like, I'm not really too sure. And the, the room completely changed and the white people were nervous and everybody else yeah. was calm, which is very interesting to notice. And I'm just wondering... What do you think about like starting, I don't know, seminars, courses, pod, you know, uh, you know, uh, all those types of things with some type of acknowledgement of like, if yeah. you're in a live place, this is what happened with the Native American Indian people here. Oh, here's the history of slavery here. Oh, hey, here's yeah. where I'm at. Like, because, you know, in mental health, people do disclosures, right? Totally. What are your thoughts on that as a best practice in the coaching space? I think it's, uh, um, I think it's delicate. And the reason I think it's delicate is because those are some of the things that could really be performative. Um, they could really be mm. like done. That's as true, like, actually. These, these, this is a symbol that I get it, that I'm down, that I'm cool. Like, you know, like I, I'm, I'm in touch, right? Yeah. So I would never tell someone to just do that as like, oh, like that's a way to be inclusive. No. What I tell people is do the work first, get, get a coach, yep. do, get someone to help you like unpack your stuff. Because, and and then once you're ready, then you can do those things because you really understand why. And also that the rest of your event that you have taken the precautions necessary to create that space. Because here's the thing, if you do something like that, if you do, uh, you know, a land acknowledgement and then like a statement of privilege, which is the, the two things that you just described, right? And then halfway through your seminar, one of your speakers says something that is like a microaggression or dismissive of someone's experience or, or plays into some like racial stereotype, you've just like messed up big time. Totally. Right. So unless every component of your work has been looked through, through that lens, then you don't have any business doing a land acknowledgement or a statement of privilege or like having these like community agreements. Cause you can't back them up. Right. And then you ultimately won't create a safe space. No, you won't. A safe experience. You'll actually create more harm. Trauma. And I'll, let me, let me explain why. Because hmm. I, and I, I remember when I first started, um, like when I joined my first mastermind and um, it was all white, very white place. And, and this is an experience. And I think about this um, every time I am invited to an event or like, I remember my first time going to World Domination Summit mm-hmm. and I was, I like did a lot of thinking, do I want to go here? This is going to be a real white place. Like <laughs> or how, like, like what, what is this experience going to be like? Cause I didn't know anybody who was there or, you know, like I, I was just going to go because I heard all these wonderful things and it was a real risk. But I went with this like psychological armor, you know, and I was like, okay, I'm going to go and I'm going to see how it goes and I'm going to try to find my people and, 
you know, and like speakers would come on and they would say things that would like hit a nerve. And I would just like, but I was prepared for it because I was like, I know that I know what this is going to be. This is going to be one of those spaces like everywhere else. But if you go into a space and the first thing that someone says is, oh, I acknowledge my privilege and here's all the things, then you like, you settle. You're like, you kind of take that armor off a little bit. And so then if you're hit with something later, right, it's worse. It's worse. Yeah. Because now you've been like kind of tricked instead of like being like, you know, so, so I think, yeah. So I think it's really important and delicate. Uh, I'd never, I'd never um, refer people or suggest that people do those things unless I am certain that they have done their work. I think that's well said because I, it's almost identical to when people, you know, when people come into my space and they learn about trauma and they learn about neuroscience and attachment and polyvagal theory and all the stuff that we teach, you know, they immediately want to go facilitate people. I'm like, no, 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 no. Like, no, no, no. Like you need to be like, I've been in like my own work for decade plus, like working on my trauma, regulating my nervous system. You don't just go like regress people to their trauma. And in a way it sounds like in a lot of ways, the same thing in this context is what you're saying is that you have to embody it, right? Because exactly. one of the things you said on your training the other day was like not being prepared or able to handle like a, a faux pas or messing up, right? right. Which yeah. is uh, absolutely possible. And yeah, you know, uh, can you talk a little bit about some of the common faux pas you see white people do? Because I think I've identified a few, but I'm kind of yeah. wondering like, what do you see out there? Sure. Um, so I see, and we're, we're you know we're, we're seeing a lot of this right now, like silencing people deleting like people something will somebody will say something on Facebook or Instagram and there'll be all this all these comments people educating people expressing their you know their emotions about it and someone will like delete the post so there that is a big mistake um same cutting shutting off comments um not taking responsibility. So saying like, Oh, my team did that posted that Mm -hmm. I didn't see it. Like my team, (laughs) you know, that is not okay. Um, saying that your team, you know, and also like, you know, my team's not available. Like we're not available to facilitate this, this discussion. That's a big, particularly around coaching and transformation work, because if you're in the business of telling people to show up as they are and to be more authentically them, right. When they're talking about things that have to do with like their identities, that's part of them. Like you can't say like this, we don't talk about this here. We don't talk about politics or, you know, a black body is political, like, especially in this moment. Right. So that is, um, that's definitely something we see a lot of, like half apologies uh-huh. um, that are just like, you know, I'm sorry if I offended people, that kind of stuff. We, we didn't if if to, I did it, if I did yeah, it, not I, that I did it. Yeah. Right. I'm sorry <laughs> if I offended people. It wasn't my intent. I didn't inhale, you know, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it, yeah. It wasn't my intent. Um, you know, th- those kinds of things. Like you really need to be prepared to accept full responsibility to repair harm where you can take a restorative practice, right? Repair harm. Yeah. Um, talk about how you're going to like plans for how you're going to do better. Following up with people, if that's appropriate, you know, depending on the situation, you know, there, there are different things that can be done. Um, I mean, and then the other thing is just like ignoring it, like ignoring right. that things aren't happening is not a good look. <laughs> like you yeah. have to, you can't be like carrying on with a launch 
in the middle of a political crisis and right. not acknowledge that, you know, exactly something well, is going it, on. It's funny you say that because literally as we record this stage in second, this is the beginning of one of our launches. Yeah. And uh, like today, and I'm planned for months, right? And I had thought really long and hard about should we move forward or not? And uh, after watching the training, and I was kind of forming this thought already, but your training, I was like, no, we're doing it. But we're, of course, we're going to acknowledge it. But I didn't even know if, if acknowledging it would be enough. But I realized is that like what we're teaching is like trauma and purpose. And when you let trauma patterns get a hold of your nervous system, you downregulate or you know, make purpose almost impossible. If yeah. any time there was a time, this is doing it. But not dismissing it, like actually bringing it as a part of the narrative in right. a way, right. right? Which I think is okay too. I think, cause I think what I'm noticing with a lot of white entrepreneurs is they get called out if they don't respond, but right. they also get called out if they do respond wrong and they feel like there's only one way or the perfect way yeah. to do it. Can you kind of like talk about that? Because I think there's this fear of like cancel culture, woke culture, which I do agree that sometimes that goes way too far. Right. Mm-hmm. But like, what do you say to like the white entrepreneur who's like, ah, I don't really want to say something, but uh, I kind of want to say something. But if I say something, I'm going to get canceled. And what if I disagree? Can I have a yeah. dialogue? You know, like what's the, what's the message there? Because there has to be a discussion and there's no perfect way to have the discussion, right? Like there's going to be messes there. Yeah. There's going to be messes. And my, I, you know, get, get help. Like get, don't, na- don't try to navigate these things on your own. Like you don't, try to navigate these things. You don't try to build your own. Well, maybe, I don't know, depending on, depending on where you are in your work and your journey and your business, you're probably not trying to like build your own Facebook ad, for example, you know what I mean? Like, so you, you go and you hire someone to help you figure out how to do that. So you don't mess something up or like, you know, whatever. Um, so find help to, to get these, to have these conversations and to, Cause they're just, they are just that important. Well, if they're that important to you, right. If, if this is important to you, get help. Um, but the second thing that, and probably more, more of a first step is really get clear on what your values are. Yeah. Because what, where people, where I see people getting like really caught up in this is that they're not in alignment with their values. Right. Or they're yeah. not clear about them from the beginning and I don't mean from the beginning of a crisis. I mean, the, from the beginning, beginning, like when there's not a crisis, like they're, right. they're not being explicit enough in their business about what their values are, where they stand, what kind of community they're trying to build outside of the core purpose of the community, which might be entrepreneurship or mindset work or whatever it is. What are your other commitments and values and how do you bake those into your platform and your business? If you do that first, navigating crisis is actually much easier because all you have to do is stay in your values. That's right. Yeah. That's so, so true. That's it's so true. It's like the, it's always harder when we're like, you know, when I get calls to help people like clean something up or respond to something yeah. after it happened, like this is a conversation that should be happening even when everything is normal in your business, when there's not yeah. a crisis in the world, like when everything seems like it's going fine, you need to be asking yourself, how am I showing up? How, like, how am I expressing my values? How am I committed to my values? I think that's a great point. And one of the things I've noticed in myself, and I've worked on this a lot, and uh, over the years, it's dissolved. It's not completely gone, but it's way less as I've worked on it. What is it? I don't know if it's just me, but it seems like the white people I talk to, and myself included before I started doing this work, just would want to say anything but I'm wrong, right? 
fucked up or, or you're right. Yeah. Like, you know, like what is, what is that? And like, can you speak to that? Because like, what's the big deal? Like, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, that's like white supremacy culture. That's like, you know, it's the idea that if you're wrong, you're bad, that it says something about you. Right. And that, or that you failed, or if something doesn't go the way that you intended, that it is like the worst thing. Um, that's super like that's super egoic and just like totally and um individualistic and connected to whiteness which is really about perfectionism and gain and capitalism and all of those things and so if you're committed to capitalism and like gain and propping yourself up then it's really hard to be wrong it's really hard to admit that you're wrong or that you've made a mistake because it it's cognitive dissonance right like you can't be both of those things at once Um, but if you take an approach, if you have a values around like community and authenticity and honesty and integrity, and, you know, when we think of it from a more like a cultural perspective, um, more collectivist, more like community based, right. Then accepting ownership for what you've done wrong is really can really be like learning opportunities and like being committed to like restoring harm that then, then everybody gets, you know, everybody is um, can have an opportunity to be healed and to be more connected to each other. So I think, yeah, I think it's really connected to that idea of just like, I am, I have to be perceived as perfect. Right. Which is a mistake, you know, trying to do, any anti-racist work with perfectionist lend is seems like a recipe <laughs> it's for impossible. failure, right? Yeah, like it's it's just, no, it's impossible. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, to that note, I, I'm going to do something here and, and I think, I hope it's okay. Um, but I just, you mentioned earlier about some of the faux pas that people make. I've been watching the conversation and it seems like Marie Forleo, I'm going to say the name, uh, who, you know, she's a colleague of mine. I've been an affiliate for her, but it seems like yep. the way that she responded in her B-School community is basically not lined up with the ideals that we're talking about here. I also think that uh, the way to transform someone's mind and get to them, if you attack them, they get on the defense, right? Mm -hmm. So how do we have a conversation? Because I don't believe Marie's a bad person. Uh, I think that the way she did things, uh, you know, was not uh, the right move. I think, I think, I think it was the wrong play. Just like when I talked about last year, Tony Robbins and the way he handled the me too movement, completely wrong, completely yeah, wrong. Totally. And I thought that he had, he has work to do around some relationship with women. Right. So I think that the same thing's true here with Marie and you know, if I've done stuff, I'm happy to have a conversation because it's okay. But like, like to me, it's like the playbook is show remorse, learn, and call it out. So how do you handle that repair? Because, you know, Marie is a big example that Russell Brunson just happened as well. Yep. There's people that are having yeah. it happen right now. Right. I don't believe they're bad people. I don't believe they're racist people. I also just don't think that they're in touch with the experience of the other, which is not abnormal in human experience because it's hard for us to understand other. So could, if you could like kind of look at like the, 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 uh, a way to respond or repair when you have a faux pas like that, that would make it right. And I'm not saying there's, there's only one right way, but like, what does one do in yeah. those situations? Cause it's terrifying to go through that on the other side too. Right. And obviously right. it's terrifying to not be able to breathe. So I understand that too. Right. But what's the playbook? Yeah. How do we do that? Yeah. There's not, I mean, it's taking full responsibility quickly. I think that part of, part of what happened with Marie Forleo is that she didn't respond fast enough, you know, um, 
And so people need to know that you're paying attention and that you're taking it seriously when someone says, hey, I feel harmed here or hey, I'm like, you know, like this isn't right. You need to be you need to be fast. Even if you don't have a complete answer, you have to have a fast answer for uh, we're on it. And the answer can't be like, we're not working this weekend. Like, that's just not acceptable. Right. Um, because pain doesn't have like a work schedule, right? And like yeah. harm doesn't have a work schedule. So um, yeah, you have to, you have to be fast. You have to affirm how people are feeling, right? You can't say like, oh, that's not what we meant. Like, doesn't matter what you meant. You have to affirm what, where people are and that you played a role in it. And you know, depending on this, there's a whole lot of things, like depending on the scale that we're talking about, you might want to like have conversations with individual people to talk. You might want to pull together um, like a restorative circle, like if that's appropriate for, you know, for, for the situation. Um, you might want to say, you know what, I'm going to backtrack on this decision. I'm going to go get help and I'll let y'all know what I decide to do from here. You know what I mean? Like, right. but we're just going to put everything on pause right now and we're not going to make any additional moves. Um, so every decision is, um, or every situation might require a little bit different of a response. Um, but it has to be, you have to be prepared to like respond quickly and take responsibility and not take it personal and be ready to tell people what your action is going to be. Like, what are you going to do to repair right. and restore the harm. Right. Which, I mean, it's so interesting because it's identical to relationships, right? When there's a rupture, like people get triggered in relationships all the time. And the more you care about someone, uh, the more you're going to get triggered because it's more vulnerable and like your heart's on the line. Right. And the way that you grow or create secure attachment or healthy relationship is not about not arguing. It's about having a really solid repair strategy. Yeah. Right. And a big piece of repair strategy is even if you didn't admit it, really take in and acknowledge the impact that your behavior had on somebody else. Yeah. And I, right? and I gotta say like what part, part of it too, though, is like understanding that once you repair that, trying not to break it again in the same way. Right. Exactly. And I think that what's hard about Marie and B school is that this is ha- like similar things have happened before. Hmm. So maybe not at the scale. And I think that the social climate that we're in made what happened in B school, like extra loud, like, right. right. Um, but you know, I, I've been sent screenshots of things that have happened in, you know, in B school a year ago. And, um, you know, like, and people wanted me to say things and me like, you know what I mean? Like it, it, so it's just like, how many times do we have to learn? And, and, and also we can see, each other across platforms. Like we see what happens if Gabby Bernstein says the wrong thing, or we see what happens, you know, like we we're watching it. So why do we have to wait until the mistake is made again? Like you can prevent these things in advance, maybe not so that nothing ever happens, but we have enough evidence, right? Based on like what we've seen happen in our industry that we haven't done enough work in this field yeah or in this in this issue and so i think i I definitely i mean i i've worked with a lot of people who have big platforms and you know like multi-million dollar launches all these things and i get that when you're putting out a lot of fires but when when you're putting a lot of other things out like if you're in the middle of a launch or hiring people or 
a whole bunch of stuff and everything. And there is no reason to worry about like race or diversity. It's easy for that stuff to fall to the background. Right, right. Yeah. Because you're so busy and you're like, eventually we'll get to that. And then this happens and you haven't had an opportunity to get to it. Right. Yeah. And I think, I think an important thing to what you're saying is effectively, I mean, I talk about this with people who are recovering from trauma because the word forgiveness is an extremely triggering word sometimes because they were forced to forgive or they had to forgive or whatever. It was some type of religious thing, but that's not forgiveness, right? It's, it's really compliance and forgiveness really isn't forgiveness until the behavior change has happened. Right. Like it's not like I forgive you, keep hurting me. Right. Right. It's because that's not really what it's about. So I think what you're talking about is making this a behavioral and a procedural and a best right. practice it's across exactly. the board, really. Because and, I don't think Marie why... or Gabby or you know, anybody, Marcel, I, by the way, I've messed up plenty. I'm not sitting here like, oh, yeah, Masson's this pious. No, no, I have right. all kinds of problems I've messed up and faux pas and stuff like that, not just with the black experience, but with gay experience, lesbian experience. I've tried so hard to, but I try to repair when I can and learn and grow. Right. Um, but so I don't think it's about being a bad person, but I think what you're talking about is behavior change. That's what right. you're asking, talking about. Yeah, which makes, that's, that's reasonable. Exactly. And, and I'm talking about like, cause he, and here, here's the other part, like you as an entrepreneur, it's one thing to change your behavior, but you have a team, right? Like if you have teams of people also working for you, you're responsible for what happens, right. you know, on the clock. So, and that's why it has to be behavioral and procedural because the people who work with you, your colleagues need to be able to institute and implement your, you know, your plans for how all kinds of things are done and your values and your commitments and how you want to show up needs to be again, baked into every one of those scenarios. So we don't change. um, We're we're not going to change based on like, what we think, you know, just like, oh, my good intentions or I'm a good person, you know, or I learned, I read this book and now everything's going to be better. No, it's like, what are the, how are you going to change what you do? Right. And how from are now you going to, from now on, <laughs> right. And how are you going to, like, how are you going to look at your business and look at your programs and look at how you train your team and hire them and recruit people and market and make sure that all of those things are aligned so that your intentions are really actionable. Yeah, totally. I think that's awesome. Um, a couple other questions. I know we're getting kind of close to time and I, I had more questions, but I'm just looking at time here, but because I know you have an event right after this, we record. Uh, I, wa- I I just discovered Rachel Rogers uh, just a couple days ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know who she was before and I think she's awesome. And I watched her video discussing uh, where she discussed her response to this experience with B-School and stuff. One thing she said, and I was wondering if you could comment on this, uh, she said something about this shouldn't be crisis management. We should be prepared for this by now, right? Like we should be, you should, we should already be ready for this. This shouldn't be a crisis, right? Could you talk right. about more about like the sentiment behind that statement? Why that's an important thing to highlight? Uh, because I, I completely agree. And I didn't even know that I was prepared for a crisis. I was just doing my work because I wanted to be a safe space for my clients, right? Like I wasn't trying to be an inclusive, explicitly stated company. Like I didn't have that mindset. I just would work with a black person and go, I want to relate to you and I'm trying to, and I don't know how to. And so let me go learn how to do that. But I felt like the way that we responded was as inclusive as we could be. I didn't feel yeah. like I was thrown off guard. I felt like I know how to handle this. I've had so many white entrepreneurs come to me and ask me how to respond. Cause it's safer to talk to me than a black person. Yeah. Um, and so I'm just wondering if you could talk about this mindset though, of like we should already be there. 
Yeah, and that's, crisis response. Yeah, and that's what I. <laughs> That's what I was saying about like not, I said this in, in the workshop too, is that this, this isn't crisis response work. I once had a conversation with someone with a, a big platform. I'm not going to say who it was, but, um, it, and actually it, 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 this sentiment has come from multiple people, but the idea that like, oh, Trudy, like I love your work and I hope I never have to hire you. Right. Right. Um, yep. Because people assume that it's like you call Trudy after You're like you Olivia made a Pope mistake. or something. Yeah, that's exactly what <laughs> Scandal. That's, that's exactly <laughs> how people think of a lot of the work that I do. Wow. And that's just it, you know, it's it's harder. I I and that it's true. Like I do help people after some not everybody, some people who I really who really go through a process of um demonstrating that they are actually committed and it's not performative um, to help them figure out how to do better and then what to do in their businesses so that it doesn't happen again. But um, it should, it shouldn't be crisis management. We should know that this is the whole, like, you don't have to, how many times you have to learn the the same lesson and Rachel, you know, Rachel and I know each other. Um, I saw her video and she is justified. Like all, all of her feelings are. I was right there with her. I was crying with like, her. Yeah. yeah like uh, she's, she's exactly right. Um, it should not be. And what, you know, what's, what's ironic about all of this is that two years ago. So I've been doing diversity, equity and inclusion work since 2008. Yep. Okay. Um, Masters and almost a PhD. Business has been busy, so I haven't been able to write my dissertation, but, you know, eventually maybe I'll get to that. But, um, you know, I, you know, I've, I've done this work in school systems. I've done this work in corporate institutions and nonprofits. And a couple of years ago, I decided to exclusively focus on how it shows up in the coaching industry. And the reason that I chose that is because, um, well, partly because I was getting really burnt out of being in sc- of being in school systems because that, sure. that's a whole nother thing. It's acute trauma every day. Oh my God, yeah. But also that I, I fell in love with the coaching industry and the idea of transformation. And because, you know, I'm a social scientist at mm-hmm. my core, like understanding how change happens is, you know, that's that's what I look at every single day. So helping, co- I think that the opportunity the opportunity for change through the coaching industry is incredibly is like more significant than in the school system because in a school system it's it, it re- those really replicate systems of oppression um and there's not actually changing a school system is nearly impossible i, I tried sure. it for years because there's just so many things like so much politics and so many things at play but helping someone change their business if i can get with the right leaders right? Who really start to embody this and take it and put it into the practice and train their teams. The, the ripple effect of that is massively significant and really can change lives and communities in ways that like, I, I can really see that clearly. Um, so a couple years ago, I wrote an article called um, facing race, 10 considerations in the coaching and like for coaching or what, something like that. And, um, all the stuff I'm saying now, I've said two years ago, you know what I mean? And I was trying to scream it with a little tiny, Mm -hmm. little itty bitty, you know, fish, (laughs) like with a small platform and um, trying to really not warn people, advise people that this is important. 
<laughs> Y'all need to be paying attention. Right. This work has been happening in schools, in the tech sector, in, uh, you know, like every other sector out there, um, you know, for years now. And the coaching industry was significantly behind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's terrible that it takes this to happen, you know, that it takes Marie Forleo to, to make a mistake that was big in public like that. Um, for people to start paying attention, you know, um, and if people really pay attention this time and start to do something about it, there's an opportunity for, you know, potentially never happening, happening again. You know, that's what I hope is like, is that people really take heed and, um, start to, to look at their businesses differently. And I, and here's the thing, this is, I I really want to make sure I say this. The idea of doing this work deeply personally first from like leaders, CEOs, you know, entrepreneurs, it will will change you um, in ways that you can't imagine. It will change you. It will open up your world. You will see things in a different way. It will change your business, right? And it's true that some people will, you will lose customers and followers because there's a lot of people who actually don't believe that you know, black lives matter. Right. And Which so you is have shocking. to, I mean, and you, so you have I don't to want decide. those customers like bye. Right. You know. Exactly. <laughs> so you have to decide, right. Each individual person has to decide if they want those people in their communities in the first place or not. Right. And that's for each person to decide. Um, and what happens that, what happens as a result of that is your pro, your teams get more diverse, your programs get more diverse, inclusive, and then the experience for everyone gets better. Because there's yeah. just so much evidence that demonstrates that, like, you know, multiracial, diverse teams and communities, when facilitated right and when there is equity and inclusivity, their out- their outcomes are better. Like everyone's yeah. outcomes are better. You're better problem solvers. You're better, you're more responsive. You can create community better. Like if you do it, it will be better. It will take a little time, but I promise you, like the experience will be. Um, it will transform you in ways that you can't imagine. I love that. And what, what I love about it, I, I gave a TED talk uh, about a year and a half ago at Wake Forest about how emotional trauma is the root cause of a lot of the social injustice problems that we're having now. It's, mm-hmm. not, like, it's not about the riots. It's not about this or that. It's about this trauma that keeps getting repeated over and over and over again. And one of the things I said, guys, is like, look, like in biology, right, the strongest ecosystems are biodiverse. Yes. Oh, right? I use this example all right? the time. Biodiversity okay. is is resilience, like because you can respond to anything if you have enough diversity, right? Mm-hmm. And and I think that there's I think there's a wisdom, not just in having a, this is my personal opinion, not just having a diverse team, but understanding the diverse wounding that each person has uniquely because each person has a different type of wounding and each person cope with it very differently, right? I'll give you an example. Uh, the first time I ever experienced a gospel brunch, right? Like I was at actually Oprah's house, right? Believe it, it's like that crazy experience. But I was like, I, I had this whole experience like, this is amazing, the singing, the connection. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about like, you know, the gospel tradition, the African-American community, the Baptist church in the South. And I go, oh my God, this is an emotional regulation strategy to cope with all this trauma, right? And I wish I would have had that strategy growing up. Like that would have been amazing, right? right? So I think there's, what you're saying is so true, both in nature, but also it gives us more uh, more tools to work with. Because if I can understand your pain, you can understand my pain. And there's no loss because I'm sharing my pain that's invalidating yours. And we can right. understand how we've both coped. There could be you know, shared information there and you get 
more uh, better outcomes, like you're saying. To me, that makes a ton of sense. Yeah. Would you absolutely. say that that's true? Yeah, I, I 100% agree. And the way to get there, like it, it's not, it doesn't happen overnight by putting people like of different races and ethnicities and genders and ages, you know, like all into one room. That's diversity for just the sake of like numbers. You, you want to really create inclusive environments that unite around values, right? And right. around, you know, beliefs and those kinds of things. And if you do that, you'll, you can have what you describe. Yeah, yeah I think the the word I want to that comes to mind when you're talking about it, just the same. It's because it's exactly the same when it comes to the trauma work. Is the word is embodied, embodied yeah, diversity. It's exactly. not just mentalized, right? It's it's right. actually your lived experience. It's who you are. It's the work that you've done. That's a that's a going to be a big challenge because <laughs> I just know how hard it is to get someone to have one breakthrough on an embodied level. We're talking about systemic four hundred year tradition here. Yeah. You know, um, okay. So, um, what was the last question? So, um, oh yeah. So just for time's sake, I've been pondering why Nazi Germany was able to recover faster and repair faster with the Jewish people than America has been able to do, uh, with race and with black uh, African-Americans and indigenous cultures. And what I can, what I came to what came to mind when I thought about this was, well, Germany wasn't founded upon this idea that they need the Jews to be won down so that there could be a financial prosperity. But America was founded on this principle that we need slave labor, we need African-Americans, we need black people to be won down so that we can prosper. And I'm wondering if you think that's true. And I'm also kind of wondering if there was a core trauma on both sides, like what's the core black trauma experience? And do you have any sense of like, what's the core experience for white people? Like what's the trauma? Is it guilt? Like, does it make sense? I'm trying to unpack that. It's maybe a big question that requires a hundred hours of examination. I don't know, but I'm just wondering if you have thoughts on that, you know? Yeah. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't really know. I think that like, um, I think for white people, there's just tons of layers of, of guilt and, you know, and, fragility and, and power that they, that doesn't want to be given up. And um, so their trauma is a loss of power. That's yeah, that's, that's right. Or, and perceived loss of power. Like it's a perception because the, they hold it like white folks hold it. Right. And, and we see that all the time. And that's why, you know, there's all this, to all this attention being called out to like white women who are weaponizing police by calling police officers and like you, you know, there's all, all of this. uh, I think, so I think part of it is perception of, the loss of power and which is also another very uh, American and, and white idea that in order for me to have someone else needs to lose. That's we're not what really, the country is founded on. I mean, yeah, exactly. Really ex- true. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's exact. I think that's exactly right. Um, you know, huh. I don't, I can't really speak into like what the core black trauma is. Like um, I, I think that like, People should be following black women to really understand that, you know, reading books written by black, all kinds of like black and brown people. Um, I, you know, it's not, it's something I speak to because I don't identify. I am a biracial Latina. So my, my father is an Afro Latino from Puerto Rico and my mom is white. And um, so I definitely think that like, we should be following people who are, you know, descendants of American, like uh, American enslaved people to really understand what that is. And there's just, you know, tons of amazing people doing work publicly 
um, on Instagram, through Instagram and through their various like platforms. And there's just so much, so many resources now more than ever to really tap into that. I really try to um, stick to, I mean, of course I have thoughts about it, but I think that from a, from a responsible professional lens, like my, my work is really about like, how, how do you show up as an activist in your work and how do you show up um, to authentically support your communities through the way that you, you know, through the way that you do business. Um, so that's kind of where, you know, so I won't speak on things that I, are not mine to speak on. I think that's really fair. And um, if you have any resources that you could share with me so that I could post them in the show For notes, sure. that would be yep. really good because I've, I'm pondering this question because in any relationship, like with, with two people, um, there's a core traumatic experience that people have that's almost in a way opposite. And the way in which you resolve those things is addressing it, understand the impact. Yeah. And I'm trying to, I'm trying to unpack that for the, for the, for the, if, if black people and white people were a person as a body embodied body of people, what is that core experience? And I think you've given me some insights today, but I'm still, still trying to learn. What I think is important to remember too, though, is that like, there is like black folks are not a monolith and, you know, it isn't, there's not one black experience. There are many, there are definitely shared, you know, there are definitely shared um, experiences there. And also, you know, there are black people of all ethnicities, you know what I mean? So, and so depending on like who we're talking about, but the things that are happening global, this is what I want to like really put an exclamation point on the things that are happening in the United States happen in other countries to black people of other ethnicities. Right. Of course. So for, for us in the United States, we absolutely need to be tending to what's happening here right now, right, right here. Right. And we need to understand that like the patterns of oppression against black people globally they're they're patterns. They're not something isolated to the United States. Of course. States. Of course. Big time. Well, Trudy, I could talk to you forever. I know that you have another <laughs> engagement like yeah. coming up right now that I want to be mindful of. But thank you so much for hopping on. I know that you have been inundated uh, this week with so many requests. I'm really grateful you spent the time here. And uh, I'm excited to get this out to everyone. And guys, if, if yes. uh, you're listening to this, just follow Trudy on Instagram, at Trudy LeBron on Instagram. Uh, if she has workshops coming up, get those workshops. We'll make sure to have resources in the show notes and also in the email that goes out. And uh, this is a time to really uh, do the work. And I love what you said, Trudy, about the, the embodied nature of it. It's not just mentalizing it and yeah. having uh, some type of performance. It really is about the embodiment of that. That's a really important thing to Excellent. end on, Trudy. Thank you so much for being here today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Hey, it's Mastin. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast today. And before we wrap up, if you found value in this, one of the best ways to get this trauma-informed information to the world, if that's something that you want to do and to be a part of spreading the word, I would be so very grateful if you could leave a review on Apple or Spotify podcasts so that uh, you can review this. And hopefully it's a good review, but please leave an honest review. And especially if you want to leave a five-star review, I would be super stoked on that. But of course, just make it honest. But my goal is to share more trauma-informed information with the world. And I need your help to spread this information and reviews matter. So if you feel called to do that, would very much appreciate it. If you got value from this episode and from this podcast, we very much appreciate it. And uh, thank you so much for hearing me out. And if you feel called, please leave a review on Apple or Spotify, and we'll see you in the next episode.